bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. Guys, I have been super sick this week. I sound awful. Oh, you sound sexy. I think it's okay. Uh, Not only am I congested, (laughs) I now have lost my voice. So That's my favorite voice. This is is what we're left with. Oh, don't worry about it. As long as you're feeling okay, I think that's what matters. Uh, Feeling much better. Good. Yeah. It was pretty touching up there for a while. (laughs) Well, I'm impressed because I saw your Instagram stories yesterday spinning at Glow Fair, and I feel like you were really giving it, and I did, had no idea you were sick. I, uh, like, could have fooled me. Yeah. It, did you uh, Glow Fair last night? Yeah. We did a, a spin demonstration, 40 minutes. Oh. I saw them setting yeah. up when I was coming from the gym, but... So, what is Glow Fair's purpose exactly? Is it just one big... Ottawa street party? I think that's sure. about it. Okay. Sure. I've never really known. It's unclear. They're like, there's art in the street. It's like, you're just putting neon lights up, but okay. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like... There's a roller rink and roller skate rentals this year, which I feel like I totally want to check out. That's cool. Right? Yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Something. There's like a silent disco, which is... Oh my God, I love walking past those. No, the secondhand embarrassment I oh, experienced is I know, is but it's really so... funny. You have to delight in people's awkwardness. That's how you get through life. It's like you uh, can't tell where these people are because there's like, I think there's different stations you can tune into and everyone's dancing in a different way. But you can't hear the music. In Ottawa? Yeah, yeah. They do these mm. after hours because uh, to get around the bylaws. So people will be dancing till two in the morning. Okay. But like... So silent. Yeah. They're wearing headphones. headphones. They're wearing headphones. It's it's a new thing. It is super white. I that's I why I said I in Ottawa. Is, I don't know. No, they, that happens everywhere. Like they're very common. Apparently they're like really big in Dubai and they're like these beach parties that just like go on for like hours and days and people just She might have met the dancing. Themselves. Oh no, I actually think it's pretty mixed crowd. I feel like it's not that way. Not not at that portion of the night and there's okay. different stages and different djs it's the black portion of the night yeah. <laughs> but i mean like i think the awkward people may be the white people dancing but that's what's fun about going to watch yeah. oh no i've never i've heard it was i've, I've heard it was um no i've heard it was actually pretty interesting to watch i've heard that before i just i went to glow fair once i was like wow this is full of like 17 year olds and then I yes oh, it's worse this year yes oh my it's gosh and then I was like this is not my type of party yeah yeah so I was yeah no I've never seen so many teenagers in Ottawa yeah ever, ever. yeah it was very bizarre yeah good for them <laughs> it's true at least they have to get ID they get to party in the street that sounds great when I was young I loved street festivals for that reason you I know house parties house parties are the thing I don't like crowds mm. So you had a great day yesterday. So you do nothing as if this coming from the person who's basically toured the US, okay? Sure, but like I don't like parades. Okay. Like I don't like parades because I don't get the point. Yeah. (laughs) Like a street festival. Eh. I have to really want to go to really mentally prepare myself. I can do block parties. I think block parties are pretty can can be pretty cool depending on the neighborhood 
the block party is in. It, it's all neighborhood dependent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, guys, we haven't been together in a while. The three yeah. of us. I was trying to think earlier how long it's been, and I can't figure it out. I think it's been about a month. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Do you miss me? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, yes. Yes, That's I such did. such an Aaron answer. <laughs> <laughs> she will never, she'll never be the, I miss you so much. She's not the type. She ding, will ding, just ding. be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always like a question mark. That's my like standard punctuation. Yeah. Mine's the exclamation mark. I guess that's right. <laughs> that is so you. Fine. Oh my god. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is so right, not that needy. It's not no, 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 this is just so Aaron. It's really. <laughs> it's just like she will be the only. Everybody else will be like. Oh my god, you're the last time I miss you. And Aaron be like, yeah, yeah, it was weird not you not being here. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Something was missing. Yes. <laughs> so cheers to Aaron. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. This week in feminism. So it's been a little over a week, maybe exactly a week, since the G Summit. G7 summit took place in Quebec, and uh, no one's really talking about how about anything other than Donald Trump and the U.S.-Canada trade war. But uh, one of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's goals was to make gender equality a big topic at the G7. Uh, you may remember hearing about how Donald Trump showed up late to the morning session, showing up after it had gotten underway, and of course entering while a woman was speaking. Critics have said that the G7 lacked concrete commitments to to action and gender equality. The final communique, which the U.S. didn't sign off on for other reasons, included promises to work towards removing barriers for women in social, economic, and political spheres and resolutions and sexual and gender-based violence. It also produced a commitment of $3.8 billion for girls' education, a fund that the U.S. did not agree to participate in. Beyond the money, no other measurable actions to advance gender equality materialized. Advocacy groups were hoping for a more direct response to the 60 recommendations of the G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council, which were released in advance of the summit. So, we have a feminist government here in Canada. <laughs> how does this uh, how does this align with their with their party line? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because they did strike this committee and that that was kind of cool. And they set the agenda. So I feel like in a sense, they did a fair bit more than certainly past Canadian governments and what we could have maybe ex- uh, expected from some of the other G7 uh, governments, save maybe for Germany's like backing of some of these things. But um, to not really put more political will behind some of the recommendations or like, you know, do more of the legwork in advance to get people to sign on to some of these things. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's again, it's like a bit more of the posturing. Like we, we did the thing that looks good. We put the thing on the agenda and then the follow through is not quite there. So I'm, I'm in reading the communique right now today. I quote, 
from the Prime Minister. Today I welcome the recommendations from the Gender Equality Advisory Council for Canada's G7 presidency entitled Make Gender Inequality History. I thank their work, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so there's not much of anything in here. Gender equality is a fundamental human right, blah, blah, blah. What I find interesting is that Trudeau himself, like his team, like his communications, I always go back to this team. His communications team didn't make this an issue going in. Like it didn't seem like they had, like Amy said, much will behind it. Because even though the G7 got derailed because Trump, you know, I, I think that to actually put this front and forward everywhere when they're talking about the G7 or even bringing it back to this issue would have been useful. Like They did, though. Like, a lot of the U.S. communications talked about how media talked about how this was like the first time they were holding an entire session mm -hmm. on gender equality and right. a lot of like I think the Globe and Mail and maybe some of the CBC coverage did focus on it I don't know that they talked about the recommendations yeah, is that, that was the first time I like, heard of it substantively and there, there are a mm -hmm. lot and if you look at them they, they're quite detailed did the do you know if the session that they had on gender equality even covered the recommendations from the council I think they've been distributed. Um, they've probably been briefed on it. I know that the advisory council has been meeting for months, like in pre preparation, and I think had these like out for some time. So I don't, I don't know exactly in what detail because it wasn't even that long of a session. I mean, and then Trump walks in twenty minutes late, just derails the whole thing. That's all anyone I think was really talking about after that point. Um, I think the statements made were, I think, a bit more higher level, but referencing some of the recommendations, but they're, they're really detailed. I mean, they go into um, health and security, into funding for different organizations. There's, there is the stuff about education for young women, but then there's a lot about gender-based violence, pay equity, um, you know, um, like practices around children, um, as well as forced marriage, female genital mutilation. Um, investment in multi-sector approaches to gender-based violence and that's not just like it, it goes into like a really sub-detailed like this is like what you would do on a policy level this is what you should legislate this is the kind of implementation mechanisms or legislation should contemplate and actually like so in that sense I think a lot of really good work went into it in advance by the advisory council but I don't know how much time they got in the meeting to like break down 60 very robust recommendations. And then again, like the conversation was sort of like publicly was derailed where people weren't like. I, I think that's basically what happened is, is the G7 as a whole got derailed. Yeah. And, you know, and everybody wanted to report on Trump. Everybody wanted to report on his every move. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that means this, this actual really intricate stuff and and I do invite people to read it is that it's it's actually like you said pretty pretty in depth and it's it's a lot and so I find first of all I find the fiscal policy tools really interesting um and the fact that they talked about gender equality and the environment too I thought was really interesting and um, I really want to know if following from this, 
I don't think the federal government has done this, but have they produced um, a gender-based lens on climate change? Uh, so anything that was in the budget this year had a gender lens mm -hmm. on it. I don't, so I didn't look specifically at the climate change stuff. Um, I know that there are people working on that and I, yeah. But I, I agree with you in that for a feminist, for a government that is feminist, the environment minister does not specifically identify how climate change affects women and girls, but also marginalized populations. Yes, Ever. and that's Ever. very important because I think, like, this This is exactly... I, I know everything's the new Jim Crow, but I really do think environmental <coughs> policies and politics is very gendered and very racialized. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. we've talked about... I've yeah. talked about this so many times. Yeah, and we, as a country, tend... As, as much as we're talking about a gendered lens... It's like we only want to take, we only want to make recommendations. We don't want to talk about the problems. And we don't want to establish a baseline for those problems. The problems are that, yes, there are gender differences to the way people use certain services, number one. Number two, spending everything, really. And when it comes to the environment especially, there is a gendered analysis to be had and a racialized analysis, as we know, about First Nations on reserve. And what I find is, you're right, the environment minister never talks about this. Mm -hmm. It's always, it, it really is a bunch of platitudes that come out of that government, and I'm, I think I'm just sick of their damn platitudes. I want something meaty. This is meaty, mm -hmm. you know? Let's, like, I want to, to have a discussion beyond awareness. And that's my point. I, I'm just so done. I want like something that will add lately to action. Less talk, more action. Anyway, that's my thing. I think, but I think these recommendations could lead to action if one were oriented that way. That's what I like about them. They're actual, they're actionable items. Yeah. So in the, um, the recommendations from the advisory council, did they talk about girls' education at all, and kind of, because I'm kind of wondering, like, where this $3.8 billion came from, and, they like, do. why this specific initiative. They do talk about it, I, I, and I don't know what, I, you know, I haven't seen what they signed on to in creating that fund, and, like, how it's going to be Yeah, this is the first I've heard about it. So I'm not entirely sure that it, like, subsumes more of the recommendations as part of it. My sense is that it doesn't necessarily, but, I mean education for women and young girls is like the lowest hanging fruit to be honest yeah and agreed. i find it like you know even the harper government was doing shit like this like you mm -hmm. know let's educate poor you know poor women in quote-unquote i really hate the expression developing countries um and i like i don't really know what that really like building schools i guess is something giving but then you don't know what that aid is tied to if it's tied to other development aid that we're like that we're providing or loans that we're providing or if it's it's more strings that these like governments now have to like report to us which actually creates more barriers and, and challenges um you know for the harper i know this isn't the case now but for the harper government government and for the trump government um tying that aid to um 
policies that, like, against, you know, maternal health policies that had been in place around abortion or uh, access to contraceptives. Um, you know, those governments said you have to do away with those policies and then we'll give you this, this money. So it's not, like, clear to me what having a fund like this necessarily, because it could mean any number of things and actually can, could be harmful. I believe George W. Bush is going to vote for that, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, when, when you get a center-right or right government, that's usually the strings attached. Yeah, but, I mean, and for the U.S. not to be involved, I mean, is, on the one hand... Where's Ivanka? <laughs> well, exactly. On the one hand, it's surprising because where's Ivanka, you know, to not have them involved is very bizarre. It is, but yeah. two, It was not clear who was advising him at the G7. Well, I don't think anyone advises him ever. No, I know, but I mean, sometimes <laughs> I they'll, like, trot advice. someone else to, like, <laughs> yeah. at least give the appearance or someone sits at the meeting. And gets Actually, the that's a good point because I'm surprised Ivanka wasn't more involved in, in that. Whatever. I know it's <laughs> bullshit, but, you know, like... Um, but, but on the other hand, like, I'm not surprised because it's just, like, continuing the yeah. Trump administration's um, hate on the world. Because, you know, last year you'll remember that uh, the U.S. cut off U.N. funding uh, for the agency that supports contraception internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just announced yesterday that the U.S. is withdrawing from the U.N. Human Rights Council. Yeah. Like, they're removing themselves from any sort of yeah. UN international involvement because it's, they don't find that, one, it serves them, two, it's their job, and three, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's just a continuation of the pattern of this administration. And that's, it's that's Bolton's and fucked too right up. There, but yeah, yeah, it's super fucked up. I think so, I, which is why I don't understand why Trump even went to the meeting at all, right? So, like made a big deal about rolling in 20 minutes late. He had told everyone well in advance he was leaving early or, like, right after that session. Didn't stay for, like, the end of the G7 meeting altogether. All right, so moving on. If you live on the Internet like the three of us do, (laughs) you may have seen uh, recently that Ireland held a referendum to repeal its Eighth Amendment, thereby legalizing abortion. While the law banning abortion, which was criminalized in 1983, is technically repealed, the Irish government now has to actually introduce legislation to formally legalize abortion. So there are two main issues in Ireland right now. The first is access to abortion. So it's not likely that abortions without medical cause up to 12 weeks will be available until early 2019. And the second is that the legislative gap due to the language of the legislation. So the current text of the law reads that abortions will be made available to women but it doesn't entirely define what that means, which could lead to the law excluding trans people capable of pregnancy. Since 2015, trans people in Ireland have been free to express their gender identity, but advocacy groups worry that trans men and non-binary people may be excluded due to the text of the law. However, it's possible that due to Ireland's Interpretation Act, which states that any gendered legislation should be interpreted, interpreted as gender neutral, but again concerns are that this would not cover the incoming law. So Ireland's kind of in a really cool position right now that they kind of get to make an abortion law that can lead the world. Mm -hmm. So Amy, as the lawyer here, (laughs) what do you you think about this? Because I think this is a really interesting, like, 
legislative gap here that, mm-hmm. like, the fact that, what's interesting to me is that Ireland, and the reason it was, abortion was illegal, was that it's very, very, very Catholic, mm-hmm. and very religious, mm-hmm. and, but yet they have these laws, you know, that say that legislation should be interpreted as gender neutral, and that trans people are free to express their gender identity without persecution. Mm-hmm. Um... So do you think that do you think that these this the current legislations will cover the current draft text of the law, or do you think that it's worth defining it more specifically? I mean, it's I can't hurt to define it. It's always better to define things than they like governing legislation. Um, I think the law around the gender-neutral application of laws is meant to create for equality, but not to take away from the ameliorative effect of some <coughs> laws. So where a law is meant to privilege women, whether that includes trans women and men is, is, is separate, but I just mean in general, it shouldn't necessarily apply to cisgender men. So I don't know that I would want to use that interpretation in that way. Um, but I think the... I think it, it should probably be amended, and if not, that definition or the application can be addressed in regulations. And that's actually where a lot of our understanding of what, how a law uh, ends up playing out. Um, you know, here we, unfortunately, you know, our legislatures don't spend too much time quibbling as as much as they ought to around legislative drafting and going. Um, you know, the committees will go clause by clause, but the, if the numbers are there and they just want to pass the bill, they'll just pass the bill. Um, and then regulations is really where people get uh, more of a say in terms of crafting the, the day-to-day. So if it's not too determined, too uh, restrictive, and, and I think they'll get a chance. It seems like the appetite is there. It doesn't seem like there is a, a public outcry against that kind of inclusion. Um, and so I imagine it, it'll work out. But Yeah, and I, I what's interesting to me is that, you know, people who personally are against abortion are still able to not provide the service, Mm -hmm. but they are obligated to recommend the patient to Mm -hmm. someone who can provide the service. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be come up in a discussion we're going to talk about later. Um, But uh, I like that they're not kind of, they're allowing people to kind of still have that religious kind of freedom, but still be obligated to, recommend someone yeah. else because I think if this is something that happened in the states that might not have been the, the conclusion um I mean it's, and it's different with health as well the other things I, I noticed that there uh, w- uh women in Ireland are ad- advocating for is things like like the bubble law that mm-hmm. we have uh for now here in Ontario um I thought that was pretty rad and and you're right this is great to get a chance to create like a holistic approach to address abortion access um like again how it's uh, how it's administered costs i think cost is the other issue there right now yes um i think it's yeah it's uh an interesting opportunity like if we could you know it's like a great like 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 mental exercise to be like if we could create the ideal circumstances for administering and giving access to abortion what would it be all the laws that accompany it and like get to envision what that looks like. And in that sense, they're very fortunate. Yeah. Erica. So recent reports, um, indicate that the Irish government plans to set the price of abortion 
at about 300 euros or 350 dollars with low income individuals eligible to have the costs waived um, but some advocacy groups have expressed that not all low income individuals will actually qualify for the free care because you need to be in possession of a state issued medical card to waive costs um, so the question becomes should we force people who are low income to, to continue a pregnancy that they don't want or how do we try to solve this problem I mean we not like Canada <laughs> but like royal we crowdfunding <laughs> <laughs> so how can we avoid discriminating against low income people and marginalized populations uh, um, I think they should make it part of healthcare mm -hmm. period mm -hmm. I, mean, yeah. I, I think that's the way you do it. <laughs> you make it available to all by making it available to, you know, everybody who, you know, when I say qualifies, if you qualify for something like Medicare or whatever, why don't they just make it a part of, of women's health? Or health. Maybe not women's health, but health in general. I hate women's health. <laughs> and it, it's like women's issues. I hate saying it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, universal access for most policies makes it a lot easier for everyone who is low and middle income to access services. It's true for education. It's true for uh, healthcare. It's true for pharmacare. Like, the moment you create, you know, a list of qualifications or forms that people have to fill out or, like, criteria that they have to prove, you are putting you know, barriers that may be quite insurmountable for a lot of folks and then deny, essentially, by virtue of that, denying them the right. Opting in creates, um, creates steps and between those steps is always, there's always a way to disqualify people. Mm. And whereas opting out is much easier to administer I would think it would be more cheap it would be cheaper to administer to be honest mm -hmm. and um, gives everybody universal access well yeah and it also kind of normalizes it and makes it less sure attaches less stigma to it because mm -hmm. if people feel that they don't have to be meet a set of criteria or like be treated in a certain way then they can just be like oh like this is just a normal part of everyday mm -hmm. life um, Which it is. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. No, no, but yeah, I yeah. think that's like where we need to go. Absolutely. Sure. What's interesting to me is that um, a place that where abortion was illegal for the past several decades is at the forefront of like <laughs> developing yeah. a very progressive abortion policy, like mm -hmm. a world leader. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's just so crazy to me. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I'm I, the, this whole thing, like the whole story of the the referendum and everything. I've learned a lot about, I guess, like Irish civil society and like how thriving it is and how you know organized people have been and are. And I think that's that's really cool. And I'm sure there's a lot of cues that we can take as activists and what have you in Canada. I mean, we'll be well, we're facing a different battle the other way, which is that there's an erosion of our, of our rights coming. I mean, Doug Ford has made no secret, for example, in Ontario, of the different abortion legislations that he either would himself introduce to repeal or would allow his caucus members to go after. 
So including including the bubble laws, which we talked about, and that Ireland's looking to introduce as well around picketing, around abortion clinics, so that the people can have safe access. You know, we we also don't have great access here. I think that's something we take for granted. If we live, if people who live in urban centers in Canada, we we know that we have this constitutionally enshrined right, but we don't recognize that. You know, for example, in rural uh, northern, um, you know, even like PEI didn't have a clinic until just last year, um, and so access, like the lack of access makes it so that people actually don't have the right. I don't think people realize how different it is, like Canada is between urban and rural. Mm-hmm. Like urban and rural Canada mm-hmm. are like two different planets. Yes. And, you know, whenever I hear about PI or Newfoundland or something just getting to the point where they have an abortion clinic in 2018, mm-hmm. I just like, what the F, man? Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, urban Canada is so different from, like, rural or, like, outskirts of Canada. Yeah. And somebody explained it. Canada is, like, um, a few urban centers along the route of, like, like along a prairie town route or a prairie mm. route. And because everything in between is rural and they're, like, huge swaths of this country yeah. that don't even like cannot even fathom what we talk about yeah and that's not even it's crazy to me it's not even comparable to like flyover states in the the u.s no they're like populations more dense and sparsely spread out yeah 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 it's just it's just it's just nuts to me but it's good to like challenge ourselves because i think we get complacent and if you're like in an urban center like i think you know we think about the bubble laws being like the ultimate thing but it's if you really believe in access to abortion and I think we have to be fighting for um you know more doctors and rural doctors being able to perform medical abortions and perform you know like um in in play like in different sorts of clinics and change some of the requirements for what it means to actually have access and, and fight at provincial levels for um you know health care to actually cover these things in, in a real way I feel like the baby boomer generation is just holding us back Uh, one more one more kind of related topic on this is that argentina is actually also looking to legalize abortion what yeah so it's passed their house and it's with the very conservative senate right now Mm. um so keep an eye on that and in latin america there are only two other countries that have legalized abortion one is cuba and the other one is uruguay so moving on in a 7-2 to two ruling, a majority of justices on the High Court ruled that the law societies of British Columbia and Ontario have the power to refuse accreditation of a law school based on Trinity Western University's requirement that students follow a strict code of conduct, including abstinence from sex outside of heterosexual marriage. The majority judgment said that the covenant world The majority judgment said the covenant would deter LGBT students from attending the proposed law school, and those who did attend would be at risk of significant harm. It found the public interest of the law profession gives the right to promote equality by ensuring equal access, support diversity within the bar, and prevent harm to LGBT students. Amy, I know you have a lot of thoughts and a lot of (laughs) passion about this topic. Okay, well, I just, you know, I feel like 
Man, this is a long time coming. Um, so for those who don't know, the Trinity <laughs> Western is a school based in BC that offers a number of different programs um, in, and wanted to start a law school. And once that conversation started to happen a few years back, law students across Canada were pretty irate about it, especially the LGBTQ community. Um, people were very, felt very passionately about whether or not they get accredited um, because of this covenant. And so it's not really, and I think this is what's kind of getting lost in the conversation. And you're going to hear a lot of people argue that they're not being allowed to actually attend a faith-based school, even though it's a private institution, and that's not actually governed by the charter. But the reality of it is the accreditation and the accrediting societies do have to consider the charter and they have to consider access to the legal profession and whether or not LGBTQ students would be discriminated against. And they found that this covenant, so not just not going to the religious school itself, but the covenant that they were forced to sign, which has a lot of weird shit in it. Like you're not allowed to swear and like all sorts of stuff, but you can't have sex outside of marriage and you can't have anything but heterosex, which is like, and you have to sign this. You can't go to the school and not sign the covenant. And I'm kind of like, Trinity Western, why wouldn't you just get rid of the covenant and then let them let you have a law school? But they clung to this covenant. They were like, this they're, yeah, super yeah, religious. Because their funding is based on that covenant. No, my best, no, no. They're, they, but they're my, a private institution. Exactly. They, that's my point, is that is that their donors probably donate to them well their donors now aren't getting a law school and they're losing a lot more income because of it and it's all because of the covenant it's not about the right to you can you can practice the faith you can have people attend the school i mean the court essentially said in the decision that there was such a real risk of significant harm and like that's the language they use which i think is really powerful that lgbtq students going there would you know have a very likely you know, outcome of being discriminated. And while all other people in Canada could go to whatever law school they wanted, they have their pick, including Trinity Western, LGBTQ students couldn't go there, or if they did, the trade-off they're making is that they accept to be discriminated, discriminated right. against. And then what does it say for the, for the law societies to be seen by the public in this way, giving accreditation and under these circumstances? Um, so, it, but I mean, anyway, the reason, so it's, it's interesting and it, and the whole reason we even got to this point is because of student activism and because of LGBTQ students activism specifically. And like the people who argued this were, um, in terms of interveners and, and, and at the earlier stages, um, bringing it to the law societies were all young lawyers. Um, and I think that's just super powerful and really, really awesome. And it, it shows you the power of that stuff. And now people are asking, well, what about their nursing school? Like, what about these other accredit accredited programs? And I don't know, but it's something. Uh, what's the uh, What's the logic there with like the the accredited programs? Just they didn't they didn't fight for it. Like we like we the law community, the legal community, fought the law societies. So right. in some provinces, Trinity Western sought accreditation in all provinces. Okay. In North in, in Nova Scotia, they said. We'll, we'll give you the accreditation. They allowed it. In BC, they allowed the accreditation. In Ontario, they didn't. So they would, they would challenge it, the accreditation, those accredited programs based on the same principles. More the, or the less covenant. the same principles. There's going to be a lot of debate about this in the years to come about how much 
room and discretion do we give to bodies like the law societies or other tribunals to decide issues of charter and charter violations? And for the religious community and people fighting around the religious freedom, they feel that because it's a private institution, the charter doesn't extend that far. It shouldn't govern what they do. And they're not wrong. The charter is for government action. And they're saying by extension of taking, like allowing the law society to encroach on whether or not they can have this, like credit this law school, they're in fact imposing the charter on a religious. I don't agree. I think it's essentially just saying that the charter has an influence around what accreditation means, what the law societies can do with that power. So I... Not as many as are happy with it, but... <laughs> What's interesting to me, or weird to me, I guess, is that I was always in this thought, well, of course, like, Trinity Western shouldn't have a law school, <laughs> because they're a religious school, and the law isn't based in religion, it's based on the facts of the case. And in my opinion, like, there's just one way to interpret facts when that's mm-hmm. the way that they are. So, like, I, so it was always a puzzle to me as to, like, why a religious school should have a law school in the first place. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the curriculum and how they would teach and how much that would be, like, governed. <coughs> because it's a lot of this centered because, on the covenant. It's because I don't think that people send their kids to religious schools or go to religious schools based on anything but that religion. Mm. And so the answer is not why should they have a law school. It's that the people who go there and who donate to that school want to keep them in that system mm-hmm. and they want to teach them the Sure, law, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So it's like... Well, and there's a lot of people who say that the decision could have been argued from this perspective of freedom of, of speech or freedom of right, expression for, right. that, for that reason as right. well. That you get the freedom to teach from a, you know... Um, like whatever I'm trying to think anyway yeah yeah from, yeah from that kind of a perspective so I really now want to know what their donor list is I really <laughs> sure. want to know who donates sure. to that <laughs> and how much because yeah. to run a private institution mm-hmm. you yeah sure you have to have a board and so on and so forth but you really do have to have those kinds of you're donations. not wrong for sure absolutely yeah. and I think uh, you'd be surprised too I, I recently discovered I know people who went there for undergrad really yeah and they're totally reasonable and wonderful people. I, I don't, you know, I don't know how they come up there. Um, and I think they also, and I think there is a portion of the population at that school that disagrees with the covenant as well. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's oh, they have dissension with the oh, I no I'm doubt sure. they do. Yeah. And, and and this may be they may, what the response to this may be. And I think that that is what the decision rests on. So if they remove the covenant, they take away that, then they would be allowed to have the law school. But in the trade off of the rights. I mean, the, the court says, you know, uh, limits on um, religious freedom are often an unavoidable reality of, de- of decision makers pursuit of its statutory mandate in a multicultural and democratic society. Religious freedom can be limited where an individual's belief or practice harms or interferes with their rights of others. And I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot that's, um, you know, to be taken away here about what rights balancing as well, um, normatively speaking, can be applied in other contexts, you know. So, I mean, again, ultimately they conclude no evangelical Christian is denied the right to practice religion as um, and where they choose, but the Lost Society's decision that uh, Trinity Western's community members cannot 
uh, impose those religious beliefs on fellow law students since they have an inequitable impact and can cause significant harm. Um, now, you know, the unsexy version of this is just that the law societies get deference to decide these things um, and balance charter values. But, you know, a lot of the language that's used in the decision, I think, is really important and powerful around access to justice and the real harms experienced by LGBTQ individuals. And that's also the first time that the court has used that expression, which I think is also kind of neat. We put the issue on, on their radar. Now we're back with Red and Receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others and then, you know, say why it's important and stuff. (laughs) All right, so I'll go first. Um, I wanted to um, bring in a... um, I guess the opinion piece uh, from Flair. There's other things that have been written on this, um, but it's uh, in the context of, uh, you know, two uh, very public, prominent uh, people's uh, recent suicides, um, the trend online of people, you know, writing hashtag get help, reach out, check in on your strong friends, which um, I think there's uh, there's a lot more that needs to be done to sort of break that down. And so in Flair, um, this past week, uh, Audra Williams writes um, a piece about her experience um, as someone who has, you know, been through mental health crises, um, sort of breaking down this, you know, get help hashtag. And she writes um, very personally about her most recent experiences over the last winter and, um, you know, the back and forth of, of call, what it's like to actually call these crisis lines, being put on hold, being uh, forced to complete a cer- an online satisfaction survey before actually getting referred to help, going to the ER and being sent home because she was resource- they thought she was resourceful and capable and didn't need the help, um, and, you know, starting a new job, getting um, access to medication, and then finding out that one of the criteria for qualifying for this insurance company that our employer provides is uh, being uh, found uh, not to not to be at risk for self-harm. So in fact, if you have suicidal ideation, you are not don't qualify then for the medication that may actually help you. So just a really um, troubling account. And, and she's so, you know, Audra's this really wonderful activist um, here in Canada who writes a great deal on, on mental health and other issues. Um, but here's some, I guess, practice, uh, some, some more of the advice. And so she was writing uh, that, you know, calling 911 in a crisis can often result in police visits for which many individuals uh, many, makes the situation only more dangerous. When some folks disclose mental illness, they risk losing their job or even their children. In a recent report from Winnipeg, an Indigenous woman says that she was asked during labor to complete a questionnaire that included questions about mental health. And after her, after she, her uh, delivery, her child became a ward of the state because of how she completed that survey. So when people say, you know, get help, these are there's actually repercussions to that, systemic repercussions to signaling for help um, to some degree. Uh, the system is a mess, and this is what we have to work with. And helping a friend in crisis, navigating it while advocating for a better one, is much more meaningful than just telling them to get help. She goes on, doing so might even mean going to the hospital with them, insisting that they're taken seriously. 
It might mean digging through their workplace policies to see if they qualify for prescription drugs, medical care, and mental health support, and then helping them to do all the required paperwork. It might even mean taking notes during their doctor's appointments and remembering to ask if there are free samples of prescription medication available. It also means making the system better, challenging your own employer or insurance uh, program or company to offer better support, put pressure on your uh, provincial and federal members of parliament to enact changes to improve access to mental health treatment, services, and medication. We all want our friends to get help. Uh, keep in mind, those friends need you to hashtag give help too. I just think that's just a really important reminder um, right now, and it's certainly made me reflect on, you know, and it, I, I mean, I like the discussion around, you know, even check on your strong friends. I think, you know, Anthony Bourdain's suicide in particular impacted uh, a lot of people um, pretty acutely because no one could have necessarily, he didn't fit the, the picture of what we would imagine someone in crisis looking like. And so I think it's a, the checking in is important, but the actually as providing assistance and help and support. Um, and I think the strategies on the lists are really helpful for people to think about. I think that matters a lot more and the political advocacy as well, because it's, it's just, yeah, it's just really fucked up. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what we get in our healthcare here. I was listening to David Chang's podcast. Uh, he's reflecting on Anthony Bourdain's death and he was, you know, one thing he was just sort of a throw throwing line. He's like, you know, unlike in my friends in Canada and Australia who have access to public health care, you know, they get the and it's like, well, yeah, we, we do and there's certain advantages, but actually in a lot of ways we don't get access to mental health health care. It's not included and and that that's huge. The cost of these things is is a huge barrier for a lot of people. And and again, access. People in removed in rural communities don't have access to mental health practitioners. They have health access to maybe general practitioner general gps but beyond that not much else so anyway yeah I don't, I don't have too much to add to this i do just want to point out that there are inexpensive resources mm -hmm. available on the internet so there mm -hmm. are if you're able to have access to the to the internet or have problems affording um traditional mental health treatment then you know, there are, you can find um, counselors and therapists on the internet who will provide you with services via email, via text message, via video chat, and they are less expensive than, than in-person um, options. And I mean, even if you're a little bit more rural and it's access is a bit of a challenge, um, if you are able to get internet, then this is an option for you. Mm -hmm. um, have you, like, you know, <coughs> I, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, like, it's important to have these conversations, though, with people instead of cutting out a tweet or a Facebook message that just says to get help, like, to talk to people in ways that are, like, clear and direct. Well, I, I think mental health has become really, it's become the buzzword, mm -hmm. and what I, what I, hope doesn't happen but kind of looks like it's happening is it gets commodified into specific spaces so for like basically we talk about seeking mental mental health I think I read something in the Globe and Mail actually recently like no not recently like a year ago 
and it talked about basically how well if you know you have mental health issues you should just you should seek help mm-hmm. and my issue is that it then puts the onus on mm-hmm. the sufferer mm-hmm. and it's and then we'll ch- we'll turn it into something like it's your fault that you don't totally, yeah. that you don't get help mm-hmm. and that's not from what i understand this is not my area of expertise it's not my lane but from what i understand that's not what we should be doing mm-hmm. and um i don't know whether we have to rejig our healthcare where people would have to opt out as we were talking about earlier in Ireland and and opting out is being the solution to at least the abortion laws or whatever as part of a healthcare overhaul. But we really, really need to think about how access is going to be incorporated in everyday um, accessibility options. Mm-hmm. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? No, totally. I, I really think we're talking, not we as in the three of yeah, us yeah, here, yeah. but as a society, yeah. we're talking in platitudes. And I, I I just fear that us talking in platitudes will lead to the onus being on the sufferer rather than us putting out sort of like this, this these arms to kind of collect them, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Well, for sure. And I think like part of, um, and not not everyone who has mental illness will react the same way, but for some people, you know, doing the forms and having to schedule these appointments and wait on the line is only going to make their it's anxiety worse. Too hard for right? them. Yeah. It's really difficult. It's difficult yeah, in the best state, like to, to expect you to, to jump through all these hurdles to do to do that kind of uh, legwork just to get like basic, you know, yeah. basic assistance. Exactly. And, uh, you know, setting aside the risk you run of disclosing of, of maybe losing your job or being criminalized which is and a whole other uh, you know which is also important to keep in mind so having an advocate having a friend and and if you and you know like nothing you can say to someone who's in that state will drive them away you have to you know ask direct like ask directly and offer help directly um you know i think there's a huge misconception that asking people if they're suicidal or talking about suicide with someone will drive them to suicide that's a myth in fact, being more direct and approaching people in those terms is actually a lot more help, a lot more helpful. And that's what a lot of um, mental health practitioners actually ask you to do is, is to check in in very real terms. And then, of course, if you're able to offer very real help. Okay, what does checking in look like? <laughs> well, I think it's it's having that hard conversation. I think you have mm-hmm. to be able to say, ask someone directly. Because like, we say check in, you know, mm-hmm. but I really want to know what what that actually means mm-hmm. and well it's not like are you fine are you good it's yeah like, i know you've you know struggled in the past how are you feeling is the same thing that you were going through happening again or yeah. you know how like <coughs> asking someone directly have you ever thought about suicide you can use the word it's not it's actually it's not a bad it's word it's not a bad word and it's actually you know if someone says they don't want to talk but they're not comfortable i'm not saying you push them but you can ask and you can use those you can use that language so I want to make a comment on strong people. Mm-hmm. Strong people need love too. And they need people who check in on them too. Mm-hmm. And I think that strong people do the heavy lifting for everybody else and nobody checks in on them. And it's just like this. I totally support that, that um, piece of the, of the puzzle. Because, you know, <coughs> I mean, I think... 
I think that everybody needs somebody around who supports them in general. And I'm not saying that that's what the whole issue is about, but check, it's true, check in on your strong friends who you don't think need it, per se. Because you never know what's going on in somebody's life or their head. That's my piece. <laughs> so my rented receipts this week is a study um, from the National Low Income Housing Coalition in the United States, the NLIHC. What a weird acronym. <laughs> Really you rolls think, off the tongue. Think Ottawa does it bad. Oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. Anyway, so according to this new report, there is not a single state, county, or metropolitan area in the entire United States where a full-time worker earning the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour can afford a modest two-bedroom apartment. But if those workers actually wanted to afford a two-bedroom apartment, they would have to work 122 hours a week, every week, all year, 52 weeks of the year. The NLIHC found that U.S. workers need to earn $22.10 an hour to afford a, quote, modest two-bedroom rental, which is about three times the federal minimum wage. In Arkansas, where the housing costs are the lowest, workers still need to earn $13.84 an hour to afford a two-bedroom home. The average fair market rent in Arkansas is $720 an hour, and the minimum wage is $8.50. The average fair market rent in Hawaii, on the other hand, is $1,879, and the most expensive, which is the most expensive in all 50 states. Uh, the state recently raised its minimum wage to $10.10, so households still need to earn $36.13 per hour to afford that two-bedroom home. But uh, what about a, what about a one-bedroom, right? You know, <laughs> that's that's maybe that's an option. Uh, on average, workers would still need to earn $17.90 an hour to afford a modest one-bedroom apartment. In 22 out of 3,000 counties nationwide, workers uh, could workers earning the minimum wage afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment? According to the report, a worker earning the minimum wage could have would have to work 99 hours per week all year long to afford a one-bedroom home, which is about two and a half full-time jobs. And this is being exacerbated because the Department of Housing and Urban Development, run by none other than useless Ben Carson, has announced a proposal to triple the rent for households receiving federal housing assistance and what? require that they pay 35% of their gross income in rent instead of the current requirement of 30%. So the only way to kind of combat this, I mean, one is to raise minimum wages, sure. pay people more. I can't believe the federal minimum wage is $7. That's not even for restaurant workers. That's absurd. The federal minimum wage for restaurant workers in the United States is like $3 because it's all entirely tip wages. Oh my god. When I was living in Texas, they used to pay them like two something. Yeah, dollar. it's like between two and three fifty. Yeah. It's very, very low yeah. for a tipped worker. Yeah. And that's legal. Um, anyway, and so then the other option is is to continue to inject more funding into assistance programs, which obviously isn't happening so instead we've just got 
the income and inequality gap increasing significantly in the states and it is a fucking travesty and that's not even accounting for any sort of intersections based on gender race location anything it is a clusterfuck (laughs) erica's face these fucking baby boomers i'm so over them only because I realized I saw some of the exit stats from the from the Ontario mm-hmm. election, and guess who voted for Doug Ford on mass? The motherfucking baby boomers. Okay, so I I say the fucking baby boomers because these are people who like through voting efforts have like systemically reduced the power of unions and of the ability of the collective bargaining tool. And they vote like, cause for the past 40 years, we've seen a disintegration of workers' rights. Yeah. The fucking baby boomers who wanted to uphold their 401k and their investments with capital and fuck over workers. I just wanted to say that. Amy, do you have any thoughts? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I was just I, like my only thought as I, like that was happening. I was like, just another thing that Obama didn't do that he could have done while he was there was raise the minimum wage. Yeah, the minimum wage hasn't been raised in the United States since two thousand and nine. Yeah, and it's not tied to anything, which is what the one one of the positive facets of the Ontario legislation is that it's taught it's like it's indexed going forward so it, that you wouldn't need uh, someone to uh, propose that it be changed yearly and and, and that it go through all these uh, you know legislative rigmarole as it were um, although that will be repealed soon I'm sure well, then Trump would have. Re- Trump is basically repealing everything Obama's done. No, I know, but it you know it, since two thousand and nine, wages have essentially been stagnant and quite low. I mean, we know what the living wages, we know what poverty wages are, and that's and seven an hour or two an hour plus tip as well. That's, below a, that. that's only the federal minimum wage, though, right? No, it's, no, I, it's yeah. not. It's not. It only applies to federal. That's like the very lowest it can go. Okay, but it, does it only apply to federal entities kind of thing? No. Or is it like a... It's different. It's like the federal standard. It's yeah. not like here. There's no division of power around mm. the jurisdiction of where people work. So states... But can't states like... Yeah, they can supersede it, but they have, it can't go lower than that. It can't go lower than that. Okay, so it's the baseline. Okay, so... Yeah, um... I... I... I just, I don't see the political will there right now. I just, I don't see it. Oh, no. Like, that's unfortunate. I think that um, here, when the minimum wage was raised, I think it was partially um, an understanding that real wages over the last 40 years have not really risen and not with massive <coughs> income. So I feel like it's a correction more than anything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it was hard fought too. Yeah. And people still, you know, are about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, 
in- income inequality is a basis for a whole lot of ugly shit. Let's put it that way. So if I I've been hearing a lot now, a lot of pearl clutching in general from like from like older people, baby boomers, <laughs> who are like, oh, everybody's so angry. Yeah, because they fucking can't afford to live. Wouldn't that piss you off? Like, oh my god, I can't even the like the pearl clutching and the oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Why is everybody so pissed off? Because they fucking can't afford shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, when people doubt that folks are actually working two to three jobs, I mean, this like confirms it. You'd have to make, you would have to be working two or three jobs to make up the hours to, to pay for, for your house and God help you if you have, you know, <laughs> more than a couple kids or something. And, I mean, on top yeah. of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you have people, like, I, I, to me, I, I'm not totally surprised mm-hmm. because it's, it's just continuing a trend for the past 40 years, yeah. since the 1970s, and I really do think that there's a generation that makes, takes a fucking responsibility mm-hmm. instead of telling a different generation that we need to take responsibility for the world they created for us. And that we ruin everything. And that would well, ruin everything. I'm so sick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you slightly on this notion, because there are a lot of shitty millennials. Oh yeah. yeah. No, who are like, hey, you know what would be great? Did you guys hear about this one? It's an app called Hire, H Y R, where you go on the app and they match you with get like gigs, with jobs, you know, like whatever. It's all random, and you pay, and and there's they don't abide by the minimum wage. They'll pay you whatever. It's like. You know, they're like, there's a lot of work out there, but we people don't know how to find jobs or match in the jobs. And then you pay the app 30% cut of what you make, which is definite. All of it's against the law. All of it. All of it. Because actually temp agencies or recruiting agencies are now under the law, can't take a cut of your pay. They have to make their money through a contract separate and apart from a rate of your pay. So you're supposed to get still get paid directly. This app tries to circumvent all those rules. So some fucking jerk ass like millennial dude was like hey you know what's really missing and uh all those laws are actually just really hindering how who the get... fuck raised him is oh my, my question a fucking baby <laughs> no and if you read, okay, if you read like, the articles covering it they like they're like oh how in America? look know, at the innovation you know what that's the other thing that fucking pisses me off the word innovation no no <laughs> just general like we're supposed to hold up this corporate values bullshit. Yeah, totally. And and the thing about it is like we praise Amazon, we praise Shopify, yeah. we praise all these companies, especially in Canada. Mm-hmm. One fucking company in Canada makes like a a, a cross border deal and all of a sudden there are gods. Yeah, and I'm point. just like I'm just like I've heard that Shopify is not the best place to work. In fact, the churn there is astronomical. Mm-hmm. Nobody fucking talks about that. I don't see that in the Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. And then, same thing with Amazon. People Ooh, the bright on the light. Floor, the da, da, da. Exactly. And Amazon. Nobody talks about the working conditions. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just tired of all my news and all the media I'm supposed to I'm supposed to praise at the altar of corporatism. I'm tired of it because it fucks over humanity. Who here, don't here. have power. Here, here. That's my pee. Okay, <laughs> next. <laughs> 
I, I just, I'm so, I'm so over, like, the baby boomers. I can't even. I think I had a week where I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? Anyway, so my rent and receipts is actually better than my rent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, I am talking about the natural, bare face, minimalist makeup look. And so this was in BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed reader is actually did a really good job of laying out why the natural makeup look is basically a yet another trend that you have to sink money into that separates the haves from the have nots. So the article says, if you naturally, here are the rules. If you naturally possess freckles, they must be showing depending on the overall mood of the shoot, eyes must be back narrow but ingenue wide is preferred. There must be skin, acres of it, showing. But that must remain innocent somehow. Think of a maiden taking a midday dip in a stream, naked, sure, but never knowingly flaunting anything. Lips must be nude. Hair must have the equality of slight dishevelment, whatever that means for the individual star. The latest dialect in the language of makeup is, quote, understated. It, it comes with subtext about freeing oneself from the tyranny of makeup and places a very specific value on being barefaced and glowing from within. It suggests a democracy similar but opposite to that of its more heavy-handed fraternal twin. This is just as accessible as the other option that says, so why not do it this way? It's a lie, of course, and one that we must that we consume as we always readily have. All of it is work, because of course it is. At least with a maximalist trend, a person might get to the yearn for destination of glamour on the strength of their skill. This undermade trend requires flawless free genes to begin with, and that's before we consider the surgical enhancements and other less extreme procedures women are undergoing at this particular beauty moment. For example, microblading, eyelash extensions, and tinting, fillers, etc. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, last year's soft tissue fillers and Botox were up by, were up by 3% and 2% respectively in 2016. There were 15.7 million quote, cosmetic minimally invasive procedures recorded in 2017, including some 740,000 microdermabrasions. How fair is that? So, yeah, um, I always say the, minimal, the minimalist trend is a trend. So that's first off. Second off, it does, it's not surprising that Hollywood stars are embracing this because they have access to all of these procedures mm -hmm. that the average person does not have. And third, why should we have um, these? I, I think part of these trends are play off one another. Mm -hmm. And part of these trends are just consumptive measures to capture people who the other trend doesn't resonate with. So it's, it's, it's 
it's encouraging you to spend money either oh, way. <coughs> and um, also, I will put this out there. I read somewhere a long time ago that the natural beauty trend is very um, sort of Presbyterian based in the sense that, like, listen to this, in the sense that, okay, um, or more Calvinist, I would say. So you either have it or you don't. It's based on this idea that genes are the main driver and if you're not sort of blessed with them, then you're shit out of luck, fuck you. Kind of like being saved, you know? You're either saved or you're not. And if you're not saved, you're going to hell anyway, so fuck you. And so it's this I so it it negates the idea of equality in terms of skill and in terms of mastery. So those are my thoughts. Or thoughts I want to put out. <laughs> Not necessarily mine. Yeah, I think this was very apparent with the the Vogue cover of Ariana Grande. Yes. Um, I was listening to another podcast, and they said this was the most underdone they'd ever seen her. Mm-hmm. Same. Because she, she's, like, heavy on the like heavy on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very, very extra. And so they were just like, oh, like, I almost didn't recognize her. They yeah. thought she was someone else. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, that's Ariana Grande. Also, I don't know who Pete Davidson is, so don't know. What? You don't watch SNL? I don't have a TV. You don't have to have a TV to watch SNL. I'm not going to, but yeah, a lot of the time, like, when I, it streams oh, and I go to watch SNL? it. Yeah. I go to, like, watch a clip. It's, like, not available in your country. And I'm like, okay. And You're like, move on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, cool. I just won't participate in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm personally... Like, like the minimalist look just because I'm lazy. Yeah. And, like, I think that's what you're getting at is that, like, for people who aren't into, like, the bright colors and the, like, lash extensions and all of these, like, really, really intense looks, the minimalist look is more accessible. But, like, again, it does imply, like, a certain level of pretty privilege. And, like, people don't, I think, recognize that pretty privilege is actually a thing. Totally. Um... And that can be anything from, like, having acne or just having, like, a symmetrical face and not having, I don't know, like, some sort of deformity. And how many, and how many people over a certain weight mm-hmm. actually can, can actually speak to this, this minimalist look? Because, and I, I say that because, you know, the thinner you are, the more constructed your face looks, right? Okay. As we're talking about symmetric looks, for example, or symmetry, sorry. Yeah. There are a lot of folks who, the whole point of the minimalist is not actually minimalist as you're putting in work. So there are folks, regardless of whatever weight, who will do that. <coughs> the, point, the issue with weight is that people often project onto folks who are overweight that they're, like, sloppy in their appearance, regardless of how well they dress or how well they put themselves together because of our certain expectations about what being put together means. I was thinking it more of a, like, in order to, like, depending... There, I think it, maybe Erica was saying that, like, there could be, like, a generalization in that people who are of a certain weight 
don't have like maybe not genetically have the fine cheekbones yeah, or whatever, yeah. and so therefore they have to contour. Yeah, I was, I was, I was yeah, picking I don't, up. I, don't know I was that. picking up from your symmetry point, right? And that part of <coughs> that symmetry is a sort of um, uh, a sort of chisel idea of the face. That's what I'm saying. So your cheekbones come out, your this come out. You have you know, you have uh, maybe a stronger chin, you know, uh, the jawline, all of that. Me and my face twin, Selena Gomez, can wear whatever makeup we want, and our chubby cheeks, regardless of how much we weigh, will always be cute. Forever, children. Forever young. Um, No, but I mean, I think that's a problem with the faces, like the faces that we privilege in general. Yeah. are always, yeah, yeah. uh, Like, we do privilege angular faces, but I think that's regardless of weight, because there are obviously thin people who have have the chubby cheeks so anyway the, I, I you know to me though it's like it, what's it really irksome about this trend is that it's like feeding you almost this like myth of body positivity which is which is which is totally bullshit because as you say it's like it's for uh, uh people who already have the the genes so-called of the things that we already privilege like white light skin Skin that's like you know bad, like all this stuff about discoloration and your skin how like you can't have different your spots and you have to lighten your skin and all skin lighteners and everything that you put on your your face like all of that is is just reinforcing the same ideas that people have often derided classical makeup application as wanting us all to homogenize and look like but this is actually I think even more incendiary than that because it there is a a pretty privilege and and then it's like subversive because you're not supposed to actually acknowledge or talk about it in that way. Yeah, and it also it um it also makes skincare more um I guess coveted too. So, you know, you have all these skincare lines that come up, Desium, Glossier. Is it Glossier or Glossier? Glossier. Okay, good. I would, you know, that I, I never, I'm always in between like two minds. <laughs> the intentional mispronunciation. <laughs> yeah. Although on the website it does say Lacroix. No, it's supposed to be Lacroix. I was yeah. Supposed to see. Yeah, it's it is Lacroix, and it like really offends a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, like, so now skincare lines can, I guess, get some play or get part of that beauty piece. Because we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, they're not going to let us go with just wearing nothing. <laughs> or doing nothing. Yeah. Being back in Vancouver earlier this month, it really was interesting to be reminded of how superficial the city is. I took the a spin... The city of Vancouver? Yeah. Okay. And the, well, the people. Um, I took a spin class and then went to go get my eyebrows done. And I walked by several women within, like, a few blocks who I was like, oh, plastic face, fillers, oh, implants, oh, uh, fillers, oh, Botox. Like, everyone had work done. No, like, so few people in the area that I was in, I mean, this is disproportionately superficial area, but everyone there has work. And it's just so that they can, well, I mean, one, there's like an insecurity so they, so they can feel good about themselves, but two, it's just so that like, 
they are able to be what society thinks pretty is. Yeah, and that's the scary part, is that <coughs> it's it's also a lot of pressure on other women, too. And um, it is exactly trying to replicate that kind of, like you said, light-skinned, wide-eyed, like, not too hairy, because that's mm-hmm. another thing. That's another one, yeah. Yeah, um, because women can't have hair anywhere. Um, I could go on and on and on. Mm. I long eyelashes, that mm. ingenue look. Um, and don't get me wrong, I like a lash strip more like anybody, it's fun, mm-hmm. but to me, it's more play, it's not my everyday, right? Um, lip fillers, cheek injections like it's just, it's nuts. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to talk about this though because I'm still trying to balance it against the other perspective I have on makeup, which is, like, the only reason people talk down about makeup and the only reason they deride it and think it's, like, you know, not significant or important, and obviously I think we've shared this view to some extent as well. And same with surgery. Like, surgery is a, as a legitimate form of body modification. It's only looked down on because it's been fem- it's feminine, and things that are feminine are, are traditionally, you know, seen as unworthy and mm-hmm. not, you know, not, um, worth the endeavor that they're, that they're frivolous, that they're less than, whereas someone getting, you know, tattoos or piercings is a legitimate form of body modification, but Botox or lip injections aren't. I think tattoos are still class-based though. Well, they are, and we can talk about like another analysis of that, but I think more people probably are accepting of tattoos now than they are yeah. oh, with for Botox, sure. right? For so, sure. um, it's just, I think it, it's hard to find a line between like because I love makeup and I you know wear probably more than less um and like being down with that but then also being pissed at being sold a particular idea of what makeup is and what it looks like and and how I should spend money on it and and then if I don't then you know there's all this other expectation as well so it's 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 not easy that does it for this week's edition of the pod you can follow us on social media, on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook.com slash Bad and Bee Podcast, and email us, Bad and Bee Pod at gmail.com. Bye! Bye. 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 Bye.